Welcome to the Created to Flourish podcast, where we'll explore the believer's call to respond to great global need. In each episode, we'll be reading a chapter from a book called Created to Flourish, co-authored by Peter Greer and Phil Smith, and we'll examine how employment-based solutions empower families to use their God-given abilities to serve their communities. I'm your host, Hannah Ruth, Hope International's Regional Representative in Minnesota. In this episode, we'll talk about the microfinance movement and its impact around the world. If you're just joining the podcast, we'd recommend going back and starting from episode one and listening to the episodes in order. Let's dive in. Chapter seven, Microfinance Goes Mainstream, written by Phil Smith. On December 10th, 2006, Muhammad Yunus was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his historic work with microfinance. When his name as winner was announced in October 2006, millions of people around the world had the same reaction. Who is Muhammad Yunus and what is microfinance? Yunus was the dean of the economics department at Chittagong University in Bangladesh. Unlike some of his academic peers, he never lost his compassion for men and women on the margins. Passing a low-income neighborhood every day on his way to work, he began thinking of creative ways he could help unlock the entrepreneurial spirit and enterprising potential of the people he saw. He began to roam through villages, asking people in poverty about their sources of income and access to credit. What he learned was daunting. Without access to loans at traditional banks, both for economic and geographic reasons, families were often trapped in harsh repayment cycles with local loan sharks, who charged as much as 20% interest per day. Rather than make the common assumption that people in poverty will not willingly repay loans, Eunice began thinking of a creative way for them to receive loans so that they could prove themselves to be safe credit recipients. Rather than assume that administrative costs for managing countless small loans would be prohibitively expensive, Eunice visualized ways to reduce costs to a minimum. Instead of being defeated by the lack of collateral or legal standing among those he desired to serve, he worked on a loan design that would overcome those problems. In the end, he had to answer a single basic question. How can I make sure that those living in poverty will pay me back? To test his theories, Eunice decided four decades ago to personally invest $27 in small loans to help a group of women break free from loan sharks and increase their incomes by improving their small businesses. Unlike his peers, Eunice was not surprised when all the women repaid their loans. These loans were the beginning of Grameen Bank, a Bangladeshi institution that is 94% owned by its borrowers and has now loaned over $19 billion. Eunice's economic theories are the basis for modern microfinance. He continues to be an outspoken advocate of microfinance and is perhaps one of the most influential individuals in international development. It is not an overstatement to say that he and other microfinance pioneers changed the trajectory of global economic development. Thomas Edison said, Genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. The inspiration of Eunice and other microfinance pioneers was finding a way to collect loans made to people without collateral. The perspiration came from raising money and experimenting with different loan techniques until their ideas were proven correct. As a result of their genius, hundreds of millions of people have already benefited. Microfinance 
Microfinance is defined as providing financial services, such as small loans, to people in poverty so they can increase their income and decrease their vulnerability to unforeseen circumstances. Microfinance has been successful around the world. It works for one simple and indisputable reason. The vast majority of its clients are willing and able to lift themselves from poverty if given an opportunity. Edith took advantage of her opportunity. Living in Bujumbura, the capital of Burundi, she used to sell a few vegetables from a small table in front of her home. But that table didn't bring in enough income for her to contribute to her family. I used to send my children to their father for any of their needs, particularly school-related fees. If my husband left the house without giving me money for salt, then until he returned, I could not find anywhere else to get that small amount of money. With an initial $30 loan from Tarame Community Finance, a local Christ-centered microfinance institution, Edith diversified the vegetables she sold. As she paid back her loans and accessed larger ones, Edith expanded to sell non-perishable items like coal. Now she has a stand at the local market where she sells a variety of additional staples like cassava and cooking oil. She appreciates the ability to contribute to her family, sharing, My children can testify of the value that Tarame brought to our family. Why loans? In developing countries, a large number of people make their living through small businesses that run on a cash basis. Imagine running such a small business. All your transactions are cash, and you barely have enough money to pay the bills at the end of each day. You must pay the highest prices for your inventory and equipment because you can buy only in small quantities from a limited number of sellers. Your customers have access to only a small amount of inventory, which means you have to sell at low prices because you don't have the margin to refuse any reasonable offer. Your perishable goods decay quickly because you lack the equipment or space to preserve them. You travel to suppliers frequently, limiting the time you can spend at your business and adding significant travel costs. At the end of each day, you take your money and inventory home where you have no safe place to protect it from theft or the fires and water damage to which flimsy shelters are so susceptible. This is the reality of most small business owners in the developing world. It is untenable from a financial perspective. These business owners are always clinging to the edge of the cliff. With small loans effectively invested, however, Entrepreneurs in poverty have found they can improve their businesses and increase their incomes. They can buy in bulk, travel less frequently to buy inventory, stock more goods, offer services needed in their communities, and buy equipment to reduce labor costs and increase output. None of these basic business strategies are difficult to understand or execute if capital is available, but they are impossible otherwise. Who makes the loans? Microfinance institutions, MFIs, provide access to loans using capital from outside sources, such as donors or commercial lenders. Until the late 1990s, most MFIs were nonprofit organizations that used donor contributions to make loans. By 2008, there were thousands of MFIs, many of which were operated as for-profit organizations. MFIs range in size from tiny organizations with a few thousand dollars making loans in a single community to huge networks with hundreds of millions of dollars making loans in many countries. The only contact many people ever have with an MFI is through a loan officer. Unlike U.S. banks, where loan officers sit behind desks and award loans to the best applicants, MFI loan officers typically travel by foot, bike, or motorcycle to villages 
where they meet people, organize borrower groups, and make and collect loans. As one review of MFI has observed, the loan officer makes or breaks borrowers' experiences. In addition to being the face of the MFI, the loan officer can give clients the information and support they need to thrive in business and at home. During early discussions of the loan process, the loan officer can help determine the appropriate loan amount and how the client will earn enough to repay. We will go into greater detail about MFIs and loan officers, but first let's look at the types of loans they make and collect. About the loans. The sizes of these loans vary from country to country and from MFI to MFI. But the first loan made to an entrepreneur is generally between one quarter and one third of their country's average annual income. In very low income countries, a first loan might be $100, while in middle income countries, it might be $1,000. If the borrower pays back a loan on time, she typically qualifies for a follow up loan of a larger size. A routine term for a small loan is six months, with repayments made every week or two. For instance, a $100 loan might have weekly repayments of $4 to $5. As the MFI collects these payments, it recoups money it can use to make new loans. With six-month loans, an MFI can recycle money twice in one year. However, because repayments are made weekly, it is theoretically possible for an MFI to recycle money up to four times a year every year. This is a distinct advantage of microfinance over typical charities that use money only once. Like many people, when I first learned about microfinance, I assumed repayment rates would be low. Surely many borrowers would simply fail to live up to their end of the bargain. However, I was stunned to learn that the repayment rate of most well-run MFIs is greater than 95% and often tops 98%. For instance, Hope International's five-year repayment rate is currently 98%. Although this statistic sounds outlandishly high to Americans, 7.7% of whose credit card accounts were over 90 days overdue in 2015, this is actually a rather typical repayment rate for MFIs around the world. How did MFIs solve one of the most intractable problems of any lender, making certain people pay back their loans? Eunice and other microfinance pioneers understood people in poverty lack collateral to secure their loans. Therefore, any loans would have to be unsecured signature loans that are typically very risky. They found the solution to this problem in the concept of a social guarantee. Microfinance pioneers formed borrower groups of between six and eight women. Each woman received her own loan, but each member of the group cross-guaranteed the loans of all the other group members. In other words, if a woman does not make a payment for her loan, the other members of her group have to make it for her. These cross-guarantees are the primary reason most efficient MFIs have high repayment rates. Borrowers know that it is in their best interest to support and discipline each other at business and at home. This system of accountability and support helps build strong borrowing groups and communities that have a common goal, to lift their families and communities out of poverty. Enforcement of the cross-guarantee is best for everybody in the long term. I once sat in a meeting where one of the borrowers did not show up to make her payment. The loan officer refused to end the meeting until the payment was made. Eventually, one of the women left to find the absent borrower and bring her to the meeting where she made her payment. I assure you that the other borrowers were unhappy about wasting an hour of their time in the hot sun, and they let her know it. 
Another reason for high repayment rates is that borrowers who repay on time qualify for larger follow-up loans with which they can continue to grow their businesses and profits. This is a strong incentive to repay on time. Each borrower understands that the opportunity to access affordable capital is not one that they can afford to squander. There is power in a mother who wants to provide for her family. If this is her opportunity to expand her business and provide school fees and better nutrition for her family, she will move heaven and earth to repay her loan on time. Since borrowers cross-guarantee loans, most MFIs require regular meetings so that payments are made in front of the entire group and to offer additional training. In later chapters, we'll discuss how these regular meetings are another way in which borrowers can build their communities and receive other important benefits. What are the interest rates? After fees are included, the average annual interest rates on microfinance loans typically range between 12 and 60%. To put it in different terms, I typically think of the annual interest rates as being between 10 and 25% plus the rate of inflation for the country involved. Although these rates seem high, they are similar to the rates charged for unsecured signature loans in the United States. However, since the rates initially seem outlandishly high to most people, and since high interest rates are a primary source of criticism of microfinance, let's delve more into the reasons behind them. A base assumption of microfinance is that an MFI should become self-sufficient so that it can survive and service its customers for the long term. Although experts have different terms for levels of self-sufficiency, a self-sustaining MFI would have enough interest income to pay for inflation, defaults, and operational overhead. If the MFI does not have enough interest income to cover these costs, it has to raise more money, take money out of its loan base, or reduce its services. Inflation is often the hardest factor to consider. It's not an obvious expense that shows up on the income statement or balance sheet. However, if its loan base is not increasing by the rate of inflation, the MFI is going backwards. One statistic that can be misleading is the inflation rates of different countries as given by various government agencies. Bluntly, many governments, especially in developing countries, publish inaccurate statistics. I once met with some wealthy borrowers living in Russia who were able to borrow money from a state-controlled bank at 10% per year because the government wanted to have an interest rate policy consistent with a low inflation rate. These borrowers took the money back to their community where they deposited as savings in a locally owned credit union for a rate of 25% per year. The citizens knew that the true inflation rate was much higher than the government pretended and profited by acting in accordance with reality. As mentioned earlier, loan defaults are generally low in MFIs, but even so, the income from interest must cover the defaults or the MFI's capital base is reduced. Operational overhead includes the cost of loan officers, back office people, computers, travel, and other direct costs in the field. Even though these costs in many countries are low compared to the United States, they are still high when compared to the size of most MFI loan portfolios. Although tiny loans are involved, the entire loan process must be run with high operational precision. If the payment is only $1, it must be recorded the same as if it were a $100,000 repayment. Another reason for high operational costs is that most MFIs provide other services, such as training and insurance, that are built into the cost of the loan. 
Furthermore, since loan officers travel to the clients, the clients don't need to spend the time and money traveling to cities where loans might be available. The travel costs of loan officers who trek to distant towns and villages are reimbursed indirectly through higher interest rates. Borrowers are typically much more concerned about having access to loans than they are about high interest rates. In most cases, they have no other access to loans, and even if they do, the interest rates from their other options are higher than from microfinance institutions. The MFI loan interest rate is not the crucial component in success or failure. Consider the woman who borrows $50 and pays it off weekly over six months. Even at an average interest rate of 50% per year, she only pays a little more than $6 in interest. If she wisely invests the $50 in her business, she very likely will make far more than that in net income. It is crucial for an MFI to charge interest rates that allow it to become self-sustaining in the long term so that it can continue to service its community. A financially solvent MFI means the community can count on having access to loans and other financial services rather than relying on loan sharks as their only source of capital. Interest rates are only part of the story. Many people with ready access to capital do not understand that interest rates are not the whole story when it comes to the real cost of a loan. When I want a loan, I put in an application online or by going to a local bank a couple of miles away. After a short wait, I either get the loan or I don't, depending on my credit rating. The time and cost of getting a loan are minimal. It's not that way for people living in poverty in developing countries. I once saw a confidential government report on farm loans in an Asian country. The report explained how people chose among their three borrowing options. Local money lenders at rates far exceeding 100% per year, government-sponsored MFIs with a far lower interest rate, or government agencies that might not charge any interest at all. The farmers took into account many factors other than the interest rate such as how far they had to travel to make the loan request, the cost of traveling, the time required to get loan approval, the likelihood of getting loan approval, the cost of bribes, and if another loan might be needed in the future. The report concluded that after all the relevant cost factors were taken into account, the farmers were correct to make use of all three loan options, depending on the specific circumstances at the time. These farmers understood that there are many costs and considerations when choosing which loan option best suited their needs. Microfinance and Women The vast majority of small loans, around 75% worldwide, are made to women. Men are more likely to be employed if there are jobs in the area, while women are more likely to run small household businesses. At the same time, women often have less access to financial services. Around the world, they are 15% less likely to have a bank account than men. Women are typically more reliable in repaying loans, as they tend to shoulder the burden of family support more than men. A Rwandan proverb states, A woman is the heart of the home. Helping a woman helps her entire household. Francia Leonardo is a beauty salon owner in the Dominican Republic. She used her first loan from Esperanza International to purchase a generator, allowing her to keep her business open during frequent power outages. A few years after she started with Esperanza, her husband left her when she was pregnant with their fifth child. Though this was a difficult time for Francia, it ultimately led her to a relationship with Christ, thanks largely to her relationship with her loan officer. 
Francia was also able to meet the additional financial challenges of being a single mother of five children, taking out loans to invest in her business and increase her income. Francia is passionate about her children's education and is currently helping her oldest daughter pay for college. Responsible use of credit. One of the most important functions of an MFI is to educate its borrowers and potential borrowers about the responsible use of credit. In most cases, MFIs require their borrowers to use loans for a single purpose, to increase their incomes. If borrowers cannot increase their income, it is unlikely they will be able to repay their loans, which is bad for everyone. MFIs take precautions to ensure that borrowers are not using their loans to repay other loans or to purchase consumer goods. They also don't allow spouses or other relatives to confiscate the loan. To maximize the impact of credit, the majority of the loan must be used to increase income. Does microfinance work? There have been a limited number of impact assessment studies about microfinance, which we discuss in Chapter 9. But the most powerful way of understanding the impact of microfinance is to see it in action. I became a believer when I walked by a bus stop in a small town in Ukraine. I watched the bus unload only a few people, but an immense number of boxes. I turned to my microfinance loan officer guide and asked about the situation. He said, the people getting off the bus are mostly our clients. They previously took small amounts of money to the neighboring city, bought a few goods, and came back to sell them that day. Depending on how much they sold, they went back the next day for replacement inventory. Now that they have more money from loans, they only go once a week, have more time to sell their goods, buy in bulk at reduced prices, and even buy goods to resell to other vendors. They have reduced transportation costs, pay less for their inventory, have a better selection of inventory, and even make money off the other vendors. It all fell into place for me. We intuitively understand that effective mobilization of capital is required for countries to grow economically, and it's no less true for the millions of small businesses that make up a large part of many developing economies. Access to capital is a key ingredient allowing people in poverty to make better business choices. Microfinance simply makes good sense. Two important corollary points are worth noting. Borrowers highly value their loans and usually try to get one or more follow-up loans. This means borrowers typically believe they are reaping substantial benefits from the loans, a powerful testament to the potential benefits of this system. The penalty exacted by an MFI is less menacing than the threat of physical violence from the local loan shark. If a loan is not paid back to a microfinance institution, the penalties are loss of respect in the community, the ineligibility for follow-up loans, small fees, and the cost to co-guarantors who are required to pay back the loan. Those are significant costs to be sure, yet they pale in comparison to harsh physical harm or a child being handed over for slave labor. Aspects of Scale Microfinance institutions can benefit from operating at larger scales. One advantage of organizing a sophisticated microfinance infrastructure is that it can be replicated rather easily. It is possible for one MFI to have central offices in many countries and for those central offices to service branch offices and community banks in thousands of locations. Some MFI networks, such as Axion International, Finca International, Vision Fund, 
Women's World Banking and Hope International serve hundreds of thousands or millions of borrowers around the world. Another potential benefit of size is that the percentage of the cost of overhead compared to income shrinks as organizations grow. When this happens, the organization can use more of its resources to help people in poverty. Larger MFIs are also more easily able to offer other financial services, such as savings accounts and insurance. As noted in previous chapters, families in poverty often value the opportunity to save much more than the opportunity to borrow. In many countries, an MFI must be a regulated financial entity before borrowers are allowed to have savings accounts. The process of becoming regulated is usually expensive and time-consuming. An MFI is often required to have several million dollars in capital and become a for-profit entity instead of a non-profit entity. However, savings accounts not only benefit the borrowers, they offer a huge benefit to the MFI. Once an MFI is able to offer savings accounts, it typically gains the right to use the savings accounts as a source of loan funds to other borrowers. Consequently, many MFIs value this new source of lending capital because it keeps them from having to raise money from unpredictable donors or borrow from commercial sources. Trends and Events Successful and expanding MFIs are primarily driven by the desire to lend increasing amounts of money and to provide better services. Sometimes these desires work together, and sometimes they are in conflict. Note the paradoxes when we look at the possible sources of loan capital for MFIs. Donors. Donors want MFIs to have low overhead rates and provide many services to people in poverty. However, low overhead rates typically mean the MFI needs to grow larger, spend more money raising money, and reduce the number of services it offers. Individual donors are hard to find and hard to count on for the long term. This makes it difficult for a growing MFI to count on donor funds. Profits An MFI can generate additional money to lend by having profit. However, profits often improve by increasing interest rates and or reducing services to borrowers. Commercial sources. An MFI can increase the size of its loan portfolio by borrowing money from outside commercial sources. These sources might include commercial banks, professional investors, foundations, and mutual funds. These commercial sources are, in turn, driven by the need to be repaid and make a profit, so they tend to push MFIs to increase interest rates and reduce services. Although there is a cost to MFIs to have this money, and it involves risk for MFIs borrowing in one currency and lending in another, it is often easier and cheaper to access than donor money and can usually be accessed in very large amounts. The history of microfinance demonstrates how these trends play out. In 2007, the Mexican microfinance group Banco Comportamos completed an initial public offering selling 30% ownership of the bank. The existing investors received $450 million. Based on its extremely high profit margins, this for-profit organization commanded a market value of $1.4 billion. While some lauded its success, others berated the shareholders for being greedy and taking advantage of those who had no other source for loans. Foncose, an MFI located in Haiti, starts two community banks a month at a cost of $50,000 each. On average, each community bank is self-sufficient after one year and can begin repaying its loan capitalization. Foncose borrowed money in order to start a large number of these banks. Without the ability to borrow money, 
Foncose would have to grow at a much slower pace. UPS awarded $1 million to three microfinance organizations, announcing there could be no better way to celebrate founder Jim Casey's entrepreneurial spirit than to award grants to foster opportunities for entrepreneurs around the world. Prior to these types of funding becoming available, funding from individual donors was the primary source of MFI capitalization. In the end, the beneficiaries of microfinance are the clients, such as Helene Kotika in the Republic of Congo. When she first started with Hope Congo, Helene sold meat from a couple of tables in the market. She used loans to increase her stock of fresh meat, and as she faithfully repaid her loans and took out larger ones, she purchased a refrigerator and eventually opened her own store. With her own shop, Helene has expanded to offer a variety of vegetables, dried goods, oil, and drinks. She employs one of her daughters, passing on what she's learned about running a successful business. Helene hopes to one day purchase a generator to better support her freezers and open a second shop. Microfinance has become a well-accepted technique to reduce poverty in developing countries around the world. To summarize, microfinance allows the following. Outside capital flows into low-income communities, stimulating additional economic activity. Funds are recycled to other borrowers within the community, maximizing the impact of funds. Programs can be replicated to serve many borrowers. Many MFIs and donors recognize that the theme of microfinance described in this chapter is just the beginning, and that it becomes more powerful when paired with other services. Thanks for joining us on the Created to Flourish podcast. This podcast is a production of Hope International, a global nonprofit that responds to the call to serve those living in poverty by providing discipleship, biblically-based training, a safe place to save, and small business loans. If you're interested in learning more about Hope International, we invite you to check out Hope's website, www.hopeinternational.org flourish.